Thank you all for being here today. My name is April Yi. I'm here as a Ledbury critic. And thank you to our principal funder, Arts Council England. Please join me today in welcoming our two poets, Forrest Gander and James Byrne. They're each going to read before we uh, embark together on a discussion. James will be reading first. James Byrne is a poet, editor, translator, and visual artist. From 2002 to 2017, he was the editor of The Wolf, an internationally-minded literary magazine, and he is currently the international editor for ARC Publications and a reader in contemporary literature at Edge Hill University. He's also the editor of numerous books of poetry, um, the author of numerous books of poetry and the co-editor of many poetry anthologies. Among them was 2012's um, Boneswell Crow, which he was also the co-translator of. Um, and it was the first anthology of Burmese poetry um, written contemporarily to be translated into English. He also co-edited I Am Rohingya, the first book of Rohingya refugee poems in English. And he's been, giving, he's been reading in Libya and Syria, and uh, a book of his poetry has been translated into Spanish and is published by Buenos Aires Poetry. His most recent poetry collections, which you can find at the back and which he will be signing for anyone interested, are Places You Leave uh, with Art Publications and Of Breaking Glass with Broken Sleep Books. And um, these are being launched here at the festival and we will hear from him now. Please join me in welcoming James. Hello, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. How are you all? Yeah, great. Uh, so wonderful to be back in Ledbury. As April said, thanks for your kind introduction. Uh, last time I was in this very hall, we were launching an anthology of Rohingya poetry. And I recognize a few faces here who came to that event. And it, it was a really wonderful communal experience I found. And, and I find that every time with Ledbury, you know, that it's, that it's a community, uh, not just the writers, of course, but the audience too. So thanks so much for coming. Thanks to Becky and to uh, Chloe and all the team. Uh, it's really wonderful. All the volunteers as well. You do such a great job. So I'm going to read firstly from Places You Leave, which is a book that begins in Cox's Bazaar, which is when I worked with the Rohingya refugees, a series of notes that I was taking in the camps. Uh, the book then goes through various places, questioning place, travel, um, a kind of poetics, but also a poetics of, of travel. And I'll read a couple of sections from that and then I'll move on to uh, uh, a book which is also launched this year, uh, which is an elegy for my brother. Uh, more of that later, but I'll start with Places You Leave. And just before I begin, you're in for such a treat to hear Forrest Gander later. I think he is one of the most exceptional poets writing in English. So a couple of things here. Uh, the Naf is a river between Myanmar and Bangladesh, a particularly perilous route if you are a Rohingya refugee trying to escape Myanmar. Uh, and also I mentioned the Tatmadaw, which is the Burmese military who in effect run the country. This is for Zaki Oves and for pacifist Farouk, that's his pseudonym, and for Ro Maruz. Cox's Bazaar. 
You plant the jackfruit's anonymous, anonymous, nubbled face, and you wait in the boiling sand for something to happen. A goat's eye flashes gold. A girl swings on the tube well for a cup of water. You plant peas to grow in the monsoon and put on your best shirt, yellow for optimism. What is missing about the blank page is denied, decimated, you would like to cohere. Inside an airless, windowless hut, you try to rewrite Wallace Stevens' 10 ways of looking at a passport, but I've never seen a passport. How does it begin? Tooth marks in the line break, you want to put the art back into heart. When your brother ran towards the Tatma door crying, Jesu, Jesu, you turned and ran, Jahash of air, of air, jail, lock and key. But without art, it's just he, meaning brother, come here, brother, but he isn't listening. Your mother bribes the army guard to write a letter and asks about the non-trial. Will the guard deliver? Hope's lottery. There is no policy on answering letters of the law. The page is a windbreak. To write is to petition. The eye severs you in the photograph, so we repose. Someone else must always be next to you. You cannot work alone. Cyclonic clangor of rain, sword water in the naff. The helicopter pumps into Bangladeshi airspace and fires on anyone swimming away. The poem bear as a pulse, a knife, siblings in graves. The poem bear as a knife, a pulse. Your father remains stuck on the border, genocide zone. So nobody is reporting from there and so nothing is said. The child draws pictures of a burning house, singing out of history in makeshift schools. You plant and write, plant and write. What else is there to do? Peas on your roof grow beside the ash fire. You knot back the twine and forecast clouds. You write, blot out, jail of air, and the words mean the same in the morning. Zizaga anra felai e zayoji. There are places we leave, you say. There are places we never leave. Home is a dream inside a nightmare. The first line of your poem begins, I am afraid of somebody I don't know. Last night, your mother peeled back the tarpaulin and she asked, what are you doing, my son? Why can you not sleep, sleep? And you replied, Emily Dickinson, Emily Dickinson. You ignore the honking of the UNHCR truck, check the download speed for a hundred poets in English to learn poetry, to learn English, reload. Already they are looking to blame the same some, someone. The Chinese highway needs to be paid, looking at you between palm branches brittled by soil erosion. Why is it you live in the largest refugee camp in the world and they call it a lost treasure, a forgotten national park. They ask you to plant trees to save the environment. You try for the present, the sensory, but your ears sting and the smell is flesh and smoke. I want to write about family, but I have no family. The idea of the eternal traveler does not hold 
to think of poetry as orphic, to unriver memory, to unthink the severed head. As if a world, as if the world were a wound flapping at bandages, as if the world were a wound, as if. And so that's, that's a bit of Cox's Bazaar. Uh, the second piece I'm gonna read from Places You Leave uh, also concerns a, a Rohingya refugee poet, uh, Farouk, I mentioned him earlier. And um, Farouk, he, he won a sort of one in a million chance to study abroad. So if you're a Rohingya refugee, then there's only one scholarship that actually exists for you to study uh, outside the refugee camp. But the great tragedy of the scholarship is that if you win it, as Farouk did, then there's no way of getting out of the refugee camp because you're not allowed to leave Bangladeshi territory. And so I, I was all of the all of the poems in this book are written for me being inv invited to international festivals. And I took an in invitation to Turkey because I believed I would meet Farouk there, but he never arrived. And so this section is, hello. Uh, this section is uh, where I'm walking around the Hagia Sophia um, thinking that I should be meeting Farouk today, uh, but he didn't, he actually, did get as far as working as you have to do uh, with a smuggler, a broker they call them, and his mother had to sell all of her jewelry, uh, but he got pulled off the plane at the last minute. So a couple of sections from this. Delectasi, place a hand on the wish column, the sweating column, laugh out your tears on the weeping column, Scree your hand anti-clockwise, call it on a marble jar from Pergamon. If the Muzian's voice holds until the last note, it rings for truth, but whose? One wish, to walk freely through Imarat's gate, as if leaving were simplicity, one footstep after another, for you to travel anywhere without so much as a bow, without fear of misdirection. The security guard at the door rattles prayer beads behind his back. Another counts tourists through the treasury chamber to a minbar where Mary rings the dome and holds her immaculate son on the divan's white eiderdown. That you could walk from the Malfi of Murad, aligning yourselves with the blue-green mosaics and speak your name, Allah, Jesus, with the hand of another will carry you through the sky. The holy texts are bound by the same tiles, but the Imam's translation of the Ten Commandments does not fit, says the guidebook. And yet all the gold in the bazaar passes through skin. On the diocese, a precursor asks Christ to intercede on the behalf of humanity. His hand is poised but the eyes look past you, asking, why? A blue dome's improbable fold leaves no room for error, how the light breaks through. You do not trust it, you say, since no one can be trusted. Don't tell them any names or dates. Wipe out the messages as you go. A signature 
innocuous as the mark of a fingernail clawing at a wall. No one is working on Hagia's southern restoration, but the scaffold remains. It's been like this for years now, says the guide, shuffling in a cast of expensively bored Russians. Place your hand in the column, ask for someone else's luck, for the garden of Constance to unlock, for the emperor's green door, Guzul Kapi, the beautiful door, to open just for you. Dilectasi, place a hand on the wish column, sweat out the mythomus of history, laugh your tears aloud. Under Sophia, Medusa's head is caught sideways by Perseus, Poseidon, insert other names here. The column trickles down, a hundred feet is filled, it said, with the tears of slaves. In the darkness, you thought no one was looking, but he is here always, changeable as sky, Christ to Apollonius. In the dark, unsure, unbeliever, to pray beyond the everywhere, corruptibility of it all. Because anyone should be free to walk through this door and drink in this sun, this stiff air. So that's from Places You Leave, a few excerpts. I'm going to move on to a few sections from, of Breaking Glass. Um, now, it's exciting for me, and for Ledbury, I hope, because it's the launch of the book today. And I think these are the first copies in, in the world. So, so um, just briefly to explain. Um, so, tragically, uh, tragically, um, Right at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, cast yourselves back to March 2020, uh, my brother died, and he was 46. Um, it was, he'd been ill for some years. Uh, he had quite intense agoraphobia, so I always saw him in the same room. And, and yet, it was a total shock to everyone. So a, a year later, around the anniversary of his passing, um, I found myself and my wife, Sandeep, uh, with our new daughter, Gaia. And, um, but we were in California, where she was born. And I found it really difficult to try and um, metabolize that grief in a place that my brother never went to. So what I d did is I, um, I drove to Death Valley. Anyone been there? Uh, I recommend it. it. Don't go in the summer, it was boiling. Uh, it was about 110 Fahrenheit at one point. Um, but yeah, I wanted to essentially uh, bury uh, the, my brother's first memory. Um, so that was the idea through a series of rituals to bury the sound of breaking glass. Just a few sections from this. And the book has some images which you'll be able to see which I took whilst I was there. First thing you remember, kicking in panels of glass as mum and dad warred upstairs. It was the day he tried to strangle me. It was the night she came at me with a carving knife. Brother, how to bury the sound of breaking glass? If I could wash the blood from your feet, the tears that tear. Ah, oh, ah, oh, Robin, 
are the robbed, are echoes the night's chorus, the in suffix song sheathed, echoing out. Everything caught up with you, the no, the not yet. Grief in the absence of concrete nouns, skin, air, brother. Take off your skin, quartz into silicon, white globes surround the consent of oxygen. Take off your skin, blush of atomical redness, so much molecular pressure to live inside a life. Take off your skin, the abacus of rain, death's hand-me-downs, cold certainty of the slab. Take off your skin, vanish in a wreck of flesh, into the exploding stillness, this shattering of sound. Six a.m. slow fire, heat steps along the pinnacles, a glower of sand, a glower of sand at Trona, the valley's theater of dust evaporating over Panamint Springs until Wild Rose, where the dash locks on 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Drive into stovepipe dunes with a medicine bag flailing around the throat. What turns itself on the hearing wheel of vastness gone quiet? Stagecoach cactus basket outside the museum. Estrangement as reticence, metabolic, not quite. As if I could find you without touch, like an idea out of reach, yet reached for. As if being here meant the gallant outdoorsman, not your typical tourist overlooker. Audition for the part of grief's chameleon, cut. The light still rises over your shoulder, as if being here meant it were enough to bear this absence without the absence of air. And finally, oh, yeah, that was me. <laughs> this is the lowest point in the Western Hemisphere. It's a place called Badwater, and it's where I performed one of the rituals. So timing seems to work. To think of you at your lowest point, in the lowest point of the Western Hemisphere, Badwater, metabolize this, walk through salt, wall blood, sand hour. Brother, no one can harm you anymore. Myosenic insignia, glass inside clavicles of rock, quartz breath of oxygen, agoraphobia, the limping brother, heal with salt, unsuffer a life. No more counting cracks in the pavement slabs. Goodbye, a sudden release of pressure, the city's gridded constrictions. Be good to yourself, and something good will happen, said the celebrant. Cloud shadow unthreads Thorndike, drifts over mahogany mountain like a form of breath released. You, the child, the petrified angel, the adult who always wanted to leave. Leave. Thank you. Thank you, James, for that incredibly powerful reading and the images. That was a gift. Um, our next poet, Forrest Gander, as James mentions, is um, 
is uh, really uh, just such an honor to have here. Um, Forrest Gander was born in the Mojave Desert with degrees in both geology and English literature. Gander is the author of numerous books of poetry, translation, fiction, and essays. And he has also collaborated frequently with other artists. At Brown University, he is the Adele Kellenberg Siever Professor of Literary Arts and Comparative Literature, where he's taught courses such as poetry and ethics and ecopoetics. Gander's book, Be With, Us, Be With, oh, Be With was awarded the 2019 Pulitzer Prize. His book, Core Samples from the World, which was concerned with the way we revise and translated encounters with a foreign, was the finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in the National Book Critics Circle Award. He's also the recipient of the Best Translated Book Award. Carcanet is publishing his translation of the great Mexican poet, Corral Bracho, It Must Be a Misunderstanding. And Ark is also publishing his first book in the UK, uh, obviously not his first book, uh, which is called Your Nearness. And I think we may hear from both, both of these today. Please join me in welcoming him. Nobody wants to read after James Byrne. I should have insisted I read first. Um, and yeah, Nicole, your reading was so, I'm still metabolizing it too. That soft, patient pace of your reading lets the profundity of the work, uh, instead of smacking the reader in the head, it's like a stone coming down through water and just settling in the soul. I'm super grateful to the Ledbury Festival, um, where I've been once before, and uh, for my invitation to participate this year. And I'd like to thank my lovely hosts here in Ledbury, Allison and Nigel Falls, who are putting me up. And I'd like to thank the legendary editors of ARC, Tony Ward and um, Angela Jarman. Are you all here? Yeah, they're here. Um, for publishing what's really my first collection in, um, in the UK, uh, which is Your Nearness, um, and uh, th with this, these incredible color photographs. I'm so, it's, my, it's the most beautiful book anyone's produced of my, my work. And I'd also like to thank my dear friend whose poetry in person I admire equally, James Byrne. So this is from Your Nearness. Uh, just a, there's a little note uh, to some of the poems. Um, a lot of the poems um, are preceded uh, or set up by this, which I'll read you. Some, some 2,000 years ago, there was a blossoming of literature in southern India that came to be called Sangam, or Convergence. One of the two styles of that literature is Akam, a poetry in which personal emotions are linked with landscape in such a way that human feeling is expressed as inseparable from the place where that feeling occurs. It was considered not only unethical, but impossible to write about emotion as though it were disconnected from the surrounding world. Scholars of Sangam assert that the boundaries between inner and outer landscapes were considered porous and that the ultimate goal of Sangam poetry was the dissolution of any split between self and world. In this, our histori historical, hysterical, 
moment of unprecedented human-generated environmental crisis, many are looking for less hierarchical, less predatory conceptions of the relation between the human and non-human, even object-oriented realms. As Kevin Young just read in a new poem, best believe in the world rather than yourself. The next two poems that I'm going to read are situated in California where I live, but inspired by the Sangam tradition. The next three poems. Forest. Erogenous zones in oaks, slung with stoles of lace lichen, the sun's rays spilling through leaves in broken packets, a force, call it nighttime, thrusts mushrooms up from their lair of spawn, mycelial loam, the whiff of port. They pop into untrammeled air with a sort of gasp that follows a fine chess move. Like memories are they, or punctuation. Was it something the earth said to provoke our response, tasking us to recall an evolutionary course, our long ago initiation into the one among others. And within my newborn noticing, have you popped up beside me, love? Or were you here from the start, a swarm of meaning and decay still gripping the underworld? Both of us half buried, holding fast, if briefly, to a swelling vastness while our coupling begins to register in the already awake compendium that offers to take us in, you take me in, and abundance floods us, floats us out. We fill each with the other all morning, breaks as birdsong over us, who rise to the surface so our faces might be sprung. Uh, and in this time of the greatest human population movements in the history of our species, a lot of us are thinking about immigration and migration. And immigration is a theme for a number of the poets here in Ledbury, including Will Harris and Habib Tengor and Sandeep um, Parmar. I'm now married to a recent immigrant to the United States and have also been thinking a lot about immigration and also how the ocean is a welcome immigrant to every shore. This is another of the Sangam poems. Immigrant Sea, aroused by her inaccessibility, he aches for more of her life to live inside him, watching the breakers, standing so close he can feel heat coming off her wet scalp. What is his relation to this person before him, so familiar and foreign? The way he searches out her face, he searches out himself. Gusts thrash crests of swell. Spring grasses twirl circles in the sand where they stand without speaking. She wants him to know it's all charged, even grass, positive, pollen, negative. So when grass waves, it sweeps the air for pollen. He feels electricity all around, as though the wild drama of the coming storm were already aware of them, foreigners 
on this shore. Little sapphire blue flowers speckle the dunes. He wonders if he has let himself flatten out into a depthless sheet like escalator stairs, whether in the end he'll disappear underground without the smallest lurch of resistance. But when her lavish face turns toward him, beaming, the corners of her eyes wind wet, he yields to that excess. He reappears to himself. And the third and last of those Sangam poems, um, the landscape that it occurs in is, uh, the Sangam uh, poems are five major landscapes in southern India. They happen to be the same five major landscapes of California. And one of them uh, is Wasteland. I have been told there's another poem called Wasteland somewhere, but <laughs> this is Wasteland for Santa Rosa. When I moved to California, um, uh, I moved to Petaluma, and Santa Rosa was the town just north of us, and it was uh, burned uh, by wildfires, uh, which were caused basically by two sorts of human activities. And then two years later, it was burned again. All of the refugees came to uh, Petaluma. Uh, the hotels opened up uh, beds for them. The fire station put out beds for them. We opened our homes. Wasteland for Santa Rosa. Green spring grass on the hills had cured by June and by July gone woolly and brown. It crackled underfoot, desiccated, while within the clamor of live oaks an infestation of tiny larvae clung to the underleaves, feeding between veins. Their frass, that fine dandruff of excrement and boring dust, tinkled as it dropped onto dead leaves below the limbs. You could hear it twenty feet away, tinkling. Across the valley on Sugarloaf Ridge, the full moon showed up like a girl doing cartwheels. No one goes on living the life that isn't there. Below a vast column of smoke, heat, flame, and wind, I rose, swaying and tottering on my erratic vortex, extemporizing my own extreme weather, sucking up acres of scorched topsoil and spinning it outward in a burning sleet of filth and embers that catapulted me forward with my mouth open in every direction at once. So I came for you, churning, turning the present into purgatory, because I need to turn everything to tragedy before I can see it, because it must be leavened with remorse for the feeling to rise. And I'll finish with, uh, with this poem, for which there's an author's note, too. Um, what many of us uh, learned in high school about lichen, that it's an indicator species for pollution, and litmus, in fact, is, a, is derived from lichen, and that it's the synergistic alliance of a fungus and algae or cyanobacteria. Remember this from high school? Um, it's pretty much true, but it's simplified. If lichen ecology has more to do with collaboration than competition, it's nevertheless true that collaboration is transformative. With lichen, 
the original organisms are changed utterly in their compact. They can't return to what they were. And according to Anne Pringle, one of the leading contemporary mycologists with whom I had the lucky opportunity to collaborate, it may be that lichen do not, given sufficient nutrients, age. The thought of two things that merge, mutually altering each other, two things that intermingled and interactive become one thing that does not age, brings me to think of the nature of intimacy. Isn't it often in our most intimate relations that we come to realize that our identity, all identity, is combinatory? Mycobiont, just beginning to enwrap photobiont, each to become something else, its own life and a contested mutuality, twice alive, algal cells swaddled in clusters. You take a three-lens jeweler's loop to inspect the holdfast of the umbilicate lichen, then the rock tripe lichen, then the irenic amanita mushroom swarming with a kind of mite that has no anus, then the delicious chanterelles called trumpets of death. Supreme parsimony and drought lets lichen live on sporadic events of dew and fog, a velvety tormentum and the wet thallus. I crush oak moss between finger and thumb for its sweet perfume persistent on your skin when I touch your throat, so slow to evaporate the memory of seeing sunburst lichen on the sandstone cliff. But if herbivores eat wolf lichen, they die. And if carnivores eat it, they die, writhing in pain, with the exception of mice. It is rarely possible to tell if lichen is dead or alive. Maculas of light fallen weightless from pores in the canopy, our senses part of the wheeling life around us. And through an undergrowth stoked with the unseen, go the reverberations of our steps. As we hike upward, mist holds the butterscotch taste of Jeffrey Pine to the air until we reach a serpentine barren, redbud lilac, an open sky, a crust of frost on low-lying clumps of manzanita. Cardiac Hill's granite boulders appear freshly sheared. Look, you say, I can see the Farallon Islands there, to the south over those long-backed hills, one behind another, a crow honks. The frass of caterpillars tinkles onto beds of dry leaves under the oaks, where a hawk alights with its retinue of raging crows. We are prey to the ache of not knowing what will be revealed as the world lunges forward to introduce itself. But in the inseparable genetic mosaic of their thin root filaments, the identity of any singular species blurs among interactive populations, twice alive. The hum of some large insect immelmanning around our heads calls to mind, you tell me, the low drone of a Buddhist chant. But now we really hear chanting, we can't decode. Don't be so rational. A congregate speech from the red trembling sprigs, a vascular language prior to our 
breathed language, corporeal, chemical, drawing our sound into its harmonic, tuning us to what we've not yet seen, the surround calling us, theoryless, toward an inference of horizontal connections, there at ground level, an incantation, independent of us, but detectable, consummate, always resistant, to us, but inciting our recognition of what it might mean to be here, among others, human and not. Here, home, where ours is another of the small voices taking us over, over ourselves, over into the nothing between, the out of sight of ourselves, a litany from spore-bearing mouths as Hi-fi stretch their long necks and open their throats, opening a link between systems, a supersaturation of syntax, an arousal even as slow rolling walls of high decibel sonar blow out the ears of whales and fires burn uncontrolled and slurry pits leak into the creek, etc., etc., femicides, war, righteous insistence, and still, and still, the lived sensation fits into the living sensorium. Can't you hear? Don't be so rational. The world inhale. Hear the call from elsewhere, which is just where we are. No, even closer, inside us, inside the blood pulse of our bodies, the bristle of our mosses, the embrace, and exhale. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the water. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you also oh, for that. Okay. Thank you for that incredible reading. Um, I was, I, I love this, uh, the way that you were thumping on the podium between there. It was kind of making, making us feel what, what isn't actually capturable on the page. And yeah, I'm, I'm really, sure. yeah, um, I'm really excited. I guess the audience here may know, both of you are, are really accomplished translators. And um, one of the things that I've really loved about the work that you've read from today is how it's not just about translation as we typically think of it, translating from one language to another, but also that you've managed to translate these, um, the inhuman in a way, with the lichen and your um, collaboration and, and, um, and being able to, to, to bring the human into the inhuman. And also what you were doing, James, um, starting off with this idea of the first memory of your brother, the sound of breaking glass, and putting that sound um, and his own memory onto the page in a way. Is there a way that you can take us into that process of, of this other type of translation that you both engage in? Yeah, that's such a great question. Do you want to? You go first. I need to think about it. I was thinking about James, I mean, the the unspoken violence of that being a first memory of, of breaking glass in the house. I mean, going to a place of total silence um, to bury that sound that uh, was the impetus. It's really a moving um, um, the translation activity, translation traveling across a, you know, a border. Um, for, for me, the act of translation, becoming a translator, um, uh, it was part of an ethical, um, an ethical orientation. I think that translation is less of a transcriptional 
activity than an activity in which the ego has to be sublimated, that you as a writer, as a person, have to disappear, um, have to withdraw so much that you can hear uh, the music of someone else's mind, um, an incredible, miraculous thing, and then move back into your body and into your whatever skills that you have to try to bring that music out. Um, and that, um, that I think you share that same sensibility towards translation as sort of an ethical orientation towards otherness. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting what you say about musicality. Uh, there was a great session, those of us that got up for breakfast and croissants this morning. Uh, Habib Tangor was talking about translation um, and uh, trying to retain the sonority, was the word he used. Uh, so it's somehow the eye and the ear, um, you know, and I think that relates to writing also uh, and, and to editing. Uh, I mean, I, I'm lucky with, with editors. I have one of the best, Angela Jarman, who's in the audience. She has exceptional hearing, you know. And, and I think so tuning in, uh, paying attention, and turning on the senses has always been important to my process of translation. And like you say, dissolving that, that ego, um, which is obviously difficult. Um, I think Coleridge called it egoana. Like it's a kind of condition. Uh, but um, yeah, I think that's important to the, the task of translation as Walter Benjamin talked about. Can we, um, you were just talking about dissolving the ego a little bit and, and, and really listening. And that seems to be something that you've, I noticed that in, in the work that you both chose to read from today, you both visited these incredibly desolate barren places, Death Valley, um, and parts of California that have been, just been destroyed by fire. Um, but they seem to be incredibly generative locations for you and places where you were able to become very intimate with your, with your brother's memory. And, and of course, for, for you in, in creating um, the, the poem that we were lucky enough to hear from. Um, can you talk us through the... Um, the, the choice in choosing, choosing that, that very, what one might think of as a very blank space or uh, a very empty space for that generative activity. Yeah, yeah, I think with uh, Death Valley, um, it's, I don't know if some of you have felt this before, but you feel compelled through a kind of intuitive sense that there's a place you must go to to perform some kind of ritual or to be somewhere. And, you know, I've, I've been walking around the you know, the privileged space of Santa Monica where we were based and, and I just wasn't getting close to my brother. I'd write letters to him and I'd burn them intentionally to ash. And, and I just felt that, you know, suddenly I knew. Maybe it was just fortuity that I had to, to go there. And I think actually for my own poetics, uh, that fortuity um, and chance is important. But, you know, in being in Death Valley, of course, it wasn't just about being in or trying to communicate with my dead brother, you know, trying to sort of think about him. It was also thinking about what is that land and who was there. And, you know, so I was thinking about the Shoshone uh, who were almost entirely massacred in that landscape. Um, and, and, you know, that, that comes through into the book. Um, 
so again, a, a kind of poetical inquiry into, into space is really important for my own writing. And I see that in your work in an abundance forest. And I was born in the desert, in the Mojave Desert, and I've spent time in deserts around the world. Um, they interest me a lot because we say that they're silent, but once you're there, um, we say that they're silent and empty, but once you're in a desert and paying attention, they're full of life and full of movement and full of sound. And um, it's very much like sitting at your table and looking at the blank white page, uh, which begins to um, accumulate um, your thoughts, your thinking, rhythmic movements. Um, and, um, and that's a metaphor that uh, has been important to other writers who are important to me, like Edmond Jabez, another writer of the desert um, who, who compares it to the page, the empty page. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also want to remind the audience that, that we'd love to hear your questions as well, so raise your hand if you want the mic at any point. Um, I want to talk about one of the images that was um, being displayed during your reading, James, um, and in it, it was you with a, lying down with a cover over your face. Um, can you talk us through a little bit of what the, uh, the process of creating that image? Well, it was so hot I had to cover up. No, it, it's, um, it was part of a I mean, series of rituals to try and bury this memory of my brother's. And so in Badwater, uh, you know, I lit some sage and I'd done a bit of research leading up to the drive into Death Valley. Um, you know, I'm interested in the idea of poetry as shamanic practice, but I, I'm not preposterous enough to think of myself as a shaman. So, but I did want to perform some series of shamanic rituals. So what I did in this particular instance is I um, followed a shamanic ritual, which is to try and reach the other world and I pulled up at the car park, and I thought, oh shit, I've forgotten something. You're supposed to have some totem animal, but I saw right beside me a desert fox. And so it felt like, again, a sort of opportunity, I guess is the wrong word, but a chance to perform this particular ritual, which I've been thinking about. And so it, uh, I won't tell you whether it worked, whether I was able to bury the sound of breaking glass, but, um, but certainly it was, uh, totally new for me, and I guess that has some, it's quite intrepid, uh, but also there's a, there's a sort of tentativeness, like, you know, is this um, not what my brother would want, but is this something which feels like the right kind of way to, to memorialize or think about my brother? Um, in fact, the writing of the of Breaking Glass book was in itself quite fortuitous in the sense that I went there with a camera thinking I'm gonna take some pictures and you know, maybe I'll shoot, shoot some film and maybe we'll make a film or something, which I think is gonna happen eventually. But then I just found myself writing all the time. So I'll get up at six o'clock in the morning at dawn because it was too hot to really work after 11 or 12 and do all the writing and then go to the bar in the evening because of the painfulness of the experience, you know, just get Quite, um, this is off record, right? <laughs> this is just between us. Uh, but, but yeah, so it was, it, it was a bit of a surprise. And, and actually what I did, just to answer your question really, is right after five minutes of going through those particular rituals was to, as it suggests, to, to write automatically whatever happens after 
I take off the cloth. Hmm. So there's that also in the book, a bit of automatic writing. Oh, go on. Just that sense of shamanism um, is important to me too. I, I've worked with a Japanese poet who actually came, the last time I was here at, at Ledbury was with Gozo Yoshimasu, who, um, who uh, is um, brought up in Okinawan shamanism, which is sort of the center of shamanism in Japan. And he goes to spaces like uh, James did, and spaces where people have disappeared recently um, in all of the, uh, uh, the places where uh, the radioactive meltdown um, uh, evacuated and killed uh, hundreds of people, thousands of people. In Japan. Uh, in Japan. Um, and he spreads out a, a scroll, and he has a camera also, and um, and a little radio, but he just waits and listens mm. to communicate with the dead. And that um, shamanic practice and healing practices, griot, um, that's always been connected with poetry in every culture. Um, they say, you know, that every culture that's been studied has three things, that they have some kind of uh, incest rules, um, that they have some special way that they treat are dead, human dead, we don't just walk over them. And um, they have some kind of poetry, often connected with healing, visionary experience. And that, that language, which has been so central to human um, beings and human consciousness, has been reduced in our time more than ever before, so that almost all of our language now is very rational and very transactional. And um, that's what I think is calling people, young people, who are reading poetry more than they ever have before. Um, the, the increase in the US is, is astronomical and largely among the young and people of color, that people are being drawn to that because they're missing that. They're missing the kind of language that, um, that beds itself in our souls. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, just one small thing to add on to that, I think, there has been, and, and there still is, some many phenomenal writers who I particularly admire who celebrate writing as ritual. I mean, if writing is not ritual, what is it? Of course, it's much more. We could give many definitions, but someone like Banu Kapil, you know, extraordinary poet who has performed series of rituals in her writing, um, I think would be, I imagine, I don't want to speak for her, but would be an advocate of writing as ritual. Um, and so I, I feel like, you know, as a, as a poet, sometimes it helps to see other artists and, and have a sense of, you know, that is something that is still possible and, like you say, missing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the ritual has such power because you're, you're creating a tradition. Sometimes you're also taking from tradition what, what serves your work. And um, you read from your work that engages with Sangam Poetics, mm -hmm. which is... Uh, really interesting tradition to engage with. Um, and I know that you um, not only do a lot of collaboration with, with other artists, but, but also engage with other types of cultural traditions. Um, and can you talk to us about how, how you manage that engagement while also um, keeping away from the appropriative realm? I've, no, it probably maybe something you're, you're asked about. And you seem to walk that line um, with such precision. 
James and I were just talking about this um, like an hour ago. Um, it is, it, it's, it's, well, one thing, there's no such thing as an essential culture, that cultures are always exchanging with other cultures. That's been the history of civilization, is that through exchange, um, a, a language and a culture keep expanding, keep changing. Um, so that's one thing. And like uh, Habib was talking about today, Algerian culture um, or Alger Algerian nationality, what is it? It's not a singular thing at all. It's, it's, a, it's a bunch of arguments. It's a bunch of different languages. It's a bunch of um, different cultures. And that I think it's important to take the risk of being vulnerable, of going open to places that we don't know, to people that we don't know, and not uh, projecting our imagination of what they should be or what they're going to be. That's, that's key, that part for me. And I think uh, Franz Fanon talked about that, that mm -hmm. you know, not saying, I think he says in racism and culture, um, you know, you can't say these people. I mean, the phrase these people is, I think, really problematic and insulting, yeah. I think, to, uh, in terms of objectification. And, and, you know, to be in a place and think about perhaps being a guest there um, uh, is really important. And, and writing for me is a kind of poetical inquiry into place as well. So, so I, yeah, sorry to... So it's connected with listening. And I think um, the, the importance of the encounter is there. But what is the encounter? And, how, and who are you in that space, I think, is important to me. It's something, the distance, um, I think Edmund Jabez says, the distance between ourselves and the other is always the distance between ourselves and ourselves. Mm. I have one last question. Does anyone in the audience have a question, though? I see one hand. Can we get this hand to mic? In the meantime, I want to add the distance between the self and other, um, this intimacy uh, that, that is the central part of your nearness, that is also about uh, in, in, inherent in your work, um, and this, this intimacy is, is something that you, you put onto the page and then you dispense out into the world for, for everyone here to, to, um, to view in a way. Um, and what, how, how, do you, how do you balance that, um, that paradox of intimacy? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I suppose, uh, you know, even before you write, you, for me at least, I, there's a kind of intimacy um, and a physicality that leads you to the writing. So it, it seems like you go into uh, a, an intimate space. Forrest has written about um, poetry. I hope you don't mind me quoting this, but poetry is a transformative summons. And so I think I, I often find that even before the act of writing begins um, is really important. Yeah. There's some, like, I, I have a, a book called Be With, which is a book of um, grief for the uh, death of a, uh, one of America's most important poets, uh, C.D. Wright. And, um, and uh, after it came out, I read from it, uh, I think, just twice. And then I, I didn't want to read from it anymore because it was a kind of intimacy that I didn't want to theatricalize or turn into some kind of performance. 
and I stopped reading from that. But the idea of intimacy and our, the intimacy that each of us is composed of all these other organisms, that behind your knee right now there are millions of bacteria crawling around. And in James's stomach, I can hear it. Helminth par <laughs> parasites are just you know, swimming around, helping him digest his meal. It was a big lunch. Yeah. And that April's uh, DNA has the DNA of parasites that long ago became integrated into the human system, that we are mongrels. Uh, the, you know, the, which is another reason the whole you know, racism based on the idea of blood purity is a just horrific fantasy. Um, so uh, that kind of intimacy, the recognition of us being part of a, a mutuality, a communal system, I think is imperative for us to make the kinds of changes that we have to make in our thinking to confront the ecological and environmental crisis um, that we're facing, that all of, all of us in here are facing. Thank you. Can we hear from our question asker? Yeah. Um, this is for Forrest, actually. Um, I just wondered if you'd be able to speak about what it was like to um, step into the mind of somebody like Neruda, because I really enjoyed your translations of Neruda, um, the last poem. So. Yeah. Um, it was peculiar. Um, for one thing, I had said a couple times in public and recorded um, that the last thing we need is another Neruda translation <clears throat> um, because he's been translated a lot and there are a lot of great contemporary writers that haven't been translated and especially women, which has been the focus of actually my translation of uh, focused on a whole generation of women in Mexico. Um, but. Um, that they found these poems uh, just like 10 years ago after Neruda died and his wife, his third wife died and the estate took over. They found 23 poems, uh, some typed out, some just written that no one had seen before and they published them and I thought it was a terrible idea that if he'd wanted them published he would have published them. But he was fucking Neruda, he was great. And uh, the poems are really good, and I had the opportunity to translate them. And um, it meant going to Chile and learning things. There were, he used vernacular that was used only in a part of Chile and only for like 30 years that nobody remembers anymore, except like some really old people from whom I learned, for instance, that Las um, Orejas del Mar, the little ears of the sea, um, he's not talking about his wife's ear and, because it occurs in a poem where he's praising his wife's ear, but um, Las Orejas del Mar are, are um, abalone, um, the little ears of the sea. And um, if I hadn't gone to Chile and, um, and encountered people and old people and gone to the places that he'd gone to, I wouldn't have been able to do a good job with the translation. Uh -huh. That's that wonderful detail, thank you. Thank you for that question. Um, I think we're nearly closing on time, unless we have anyone really, really desperate. Oh, he's, w w a little thing to show here. Oh, one more thing, oh, perfect. Oh, no, uh, I'll just, um, I don't mind, but there was a video. But oh. Was Forrest gonna yes. close with a poem? No, no. 
No, that'd be, that'd be wonderful, yeah. I mean, I, I love that you were just talking about this journey that you made to conduct this translation, and that, um, that also that's something that, that, that you've, you've done in your work, and going to, to Journey to Turkey, for instance, mm. um, and, and in which you didn't end up meeting, meeting that, that person who you wanted to. Farouk, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, maybe we'll, we'll end on the actual video to, to leave people with this, so I'll just say our quick thank yous now. Sure. Um, Give a little precedent for it. Well, I feel like I should read one of your poems over the top of the video. No, 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 not one of mine. Yes. Yeah. All right, well, it'll just take a few minutes. It's a, it's a final coda in the book, and what you'll see on the screen, and thanks to the tech guys, by the way, um, uh, thanks to you both, um, is, is a little bit of Zabriskie Point. Has anyone seen this film? Yeah. Okay, it's, it's got really bad acting, but the final scene uh, is from, from Antonini is... Um, is quite remarkable. It's got a Pink Floyd soundtrack that has a bit of shrieking at the end. So, it has a pretty yeah, the whole film was was well, not all of the film, but most of it was shot in the desert. So I'll, I'll close with that if that's okay. Just because I know the tech guys have spent ages rigging this up. To explode, to survive beyond fridges and flying chickens, weight of mirrors of libraries the screaming glass of television. Rename it distillation, splintering of the cacti. Your eyes must have wanted to protect me across the lounge room. Perhaps I only remember the hideous carpet, the lightning terror of my pulse. Maybe I was looking away, looking down at the miracle of my newborn hand. Detonate the not know, explode glass back into sand. Plosive flints on the road home. Just let the bullies try and find you now. Shriek quieter than an under-radar, underheard even when the drums fingle in. Sound shaken back into shock comets, beyond cobblestones of voice, the intimacy of shoes, taken off, taken out, graspable yet invisible. What it is to live with you as air, simple as breathing or screaming in the asphyxiation of dust, can you see me through the daily mask, smiling at you, brisked by wind? What remains of the red cloth of grief? Still, the important things are never washed clean. Language, names, some thing. Try writing the word glass with a stick of fire, detonation unkeeping you for company. Let the living wardrobe you carried on your back loosen into kindling. The sound of glass passes the eye like tears of laughter. The pantry berserks. On the way down, I'll catch you. I'm sorry, so sorry. On the way out, I was miles off, as if one day it will be as easy as getting back into the car and driving away. No, silence in the song keeps playing through. Hear it, to live with it, to converse with you dead, to be comfortable with the screech in my skin. Sunlight dims a valley's concave horizon, makes it easy as sound, watched through clouds, migrating somewhere new. You close the door, open the door, childhood blue sky, everyday threats. Hear those voices now and you'll have a reply. Explosion, fire into air, light it up, not dressing as a wound, you're in charge now. Nobody good enough to give you a start, writes the last scene. Fire the dark, burn the rafters. Every window breaks open and walks through you. There's a hammer in your foot. 
why shouldn't things be different now? No more blood left to give. The presenter on the screen disappears into sand. Nobody's scoping you out on the street. Nothing left to fear. The onion world will skin itself. Tears in the urn. What was broken that was once you? Transmutes. Warts into silica. The sound of glass. Unshattering. In the end, it hurts. It never goes away. With us. But not. It is always you. Thank you, and thanks to April and Forrest. <laughs>